As I said earlier, welcome to Mount Perrin North Canton Campus. Um, Jeremy is on vacation, so I am here um, in his place today. Um, I know, right? Wearing a different cap. Thank you for the warm welcome from Luann in the back and a couple others. Nevertheless, we are continuing a series called Recharge. It's a series meant to focus on the most practical aspects of life, things that we focus on day in and day out, whether we realize it or not. And um, we talked about focus and priorities, and today is relationships. Now, let me, let me tell you that I was a little um, intimidated when they gave me this topic of relationships, um, because how are you going to cover all of relationships in 30 minutes or less? Uh, one, it's like asking a student to write a term paper or a two-page paper on the history of human love or something. It just doesn't make any sense. You could spend a whole year on this. Um, so um, I want to talk about a specific aspect of relationships. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 12 is what we're going to be looking at. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. We'll have some of the scriptures on the screen. And then if you have your phone or something like that, that's awesome as well. So once you get Matthew chapter 7, um, hold that place, put your finger there, and then turn backwards to the Old Testament to the book of Ruth. Ruth is a tiny little book about four chapters long. It's found, it's sandwiched between the big book of Judges and the big book of 1 Samuel. So if you see Judges, go to the right. If you see 1 Samuel, go to the left. We're going to be looking at Matthew 7 and Ruth chapter 1 today. And the specific focus of relationships that we're going to look at this morning is that of loyalty. That of faithfulness to one another. And um, what it means to be a people who are committed to one another, who are committed to those around us. So if you have that place in your Bibles, I know you just sat down literally 60 seconds ago, but I'm old school like my dad a little bit. So, can we all stand back up just for a second? Out of respect for the Word of God. I know it's old school, but I happen to like this book a lot. So, um, not to say that those that don't, don't like the book hear me. I'm just, okay, whatever. All right, so here we go. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 says this. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, if you followed my instructions, turn back to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, looking at verses 16 through 18. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Can you say amen to the reading of God's word? You may be seated. For prayer. God, I ask um, that that unfathomable, beautiful grace that we sang about, that we've celebrated, would cover us right now. I ask, Lord God, that you'd help me not to perform Um, That it wouldn't be about entertainment, but it would be about your word. That you would anoint my words and anoint our hearts to receive it. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a man named David Palmer. David Palmer is a man in his early 50s. This is a couple years ago. He lives in Houston, Texas. Now, David Palmer, like many people in this room, have just had, had just a simple cell phone. What his kids called a block. One that only made phone calls back and forth. One that only made text messages back and forth and took really low quality pictures. That's the extent of David Palmer's cell phone. Well, under much pressure by all of his friends and family to purchase the beautiful, wonderful, unfathomable iPhone, right? They were sacrificing to the gods of Apple and they were saying, Dad, you've got to get the iPhone. So he finally turns in his block cell phone and purchases 
an iPhone. And not only does the pressure, the pressure doesn't stop there with getting the iPhone, but he begins to get into the phone and they say, well, you've got to get this app that had come out a couple years ago, an app called Word with Friend, Words with Friends. Anybody play Words with Friends in here? A couple? A couple sneaky hands. For those of you that don't know what Words with Friends is, um, it's a game you play on a smartphone, basically a one-on-one Scrabble game over the application. It's pretty addictive and fun and petty. But nevertheless, he plays this game, he gets into it, and he begins to realize that his family members are not very good, formidable opponents. He keeps decimating them in these games. And so, he's like, well, I've got to find a random opponent because there's a random option on the app. You can play with anybody around the world. So the app sets him up with somebody who he has no idea who this person is. He begins to play them, and he realizes, well, he's better than he thought. He beats, the first, he beats this person in the first game 500 points to 200 points. He's still a very good words with friends players, but something happens in the middle of this first game. He gets a text message. Well, not a text message. A message through the app that basically says, hey, where are you from? And this is a random person across the world. He says, well, I'm from Houston. Where are you from? This person says Atlanta. They begin to share stories back and forth. This turns into text messages. This turns into emails. This turns into phone calls. Before they know it, he knows he is really, really good friends and romantically interested in a woman named Trish who lives in Atlanta, right? And so they meet for the first time in October of 2010 at the beach to finally meet each other face to face. And after only a few months in June of 2011, this couple is married. The next slide, there is a couple, there's a picture of their wedding, a couple that met over the petty, insignificant, addictive game of words with friends. So if you're looking for a mate, perfect your spelling and you could find someone that really is meant for you. Another story. Let's go to the next slide. This is a couple. I don't know if you've seen it recently. About five years ago, this guy right here, we don't know his name because I couldn't find it in any of the articles. And her name, which I think is Katie, because her user has the word Katie in it. Nevertheless, they met five years ago playing the game of Halo 3 together. Halo 3 is a game for the Xbox 360. They met randomly. He's from Tennessee. She's from Texas. For three years, they were best friends and messaged one another on Facebook. And then after three years of messaging on Facebook, they began to Skype. And he's like, well, I want you to be my girlfriend. I've never seen you face to face, but let's be boyfriend and girlfriend. So for three years, they're best friends, or not best friends, well, maybe. Three years, best friends, two years dating. And then after two years of dating, this picture was taken in March of 2011 at the airport, then meeting for the first time. Let's go to the next slide. They basically uh, hugged like that for a long, long time. Um, it's pretty beautiful. Like a lot of people comment on this YouTube video, like, I'm just crying, I'm crying, I'm crying. It's a really cool story. I don't know where you got the backpack. It's pretty ugly. I hope she got it for him. I hope he didn't bring that on the plane thinking, this is going to impress this awesome girl that I've never met before. And then you've got the guy in the background that's just like staring them down, wondering what in the world is happening. But um, this couple met via Halo. So if your parents, listen, teenagers, young adults, if your parents are telling you you will not meet your mate on video games, tell them to the contrary. Because if you perfect your Halo 3 skills, you may find your mate. But, right, because now, listen, they're, they're engaged now. They're going to meet in August to plan their wedding. They've only seen each other three times. It's really cool, really cool stories. But whether you're for or against technology, whether you think technology is the best thing that's ever happened to the human race or the worst thing that's ever happened to the human race, or maybe you're in the middle of it and you think, well, there's good aspects and bad aspects, you cannot deny that technology has radically changed the way that we relate to one another. It's not simply face-to-face communication anymore. There are multiple ways that we can communicate. So this morning... I want to kind of divide this sermon into two parts. The first part is going to look at um, kind of a reflection on culture, the way that postmodernism and the way that technology interacts. And the second part is going to look at the scripture and the word of God that is spoken into the heart of all of this technolo- technological mess and conundrum, etc. So, part one. This whole postmodernism deal, kind of focus on the individual self, and the whole boom of technology has created massive effects on relationships, as I just said. I want to look at three of those effects. 
The first effect is commodification. Big word. What I mean by that, I think I made up the word, which is kind of cool. Um, but commodification is, what I mean by that is that in a normal face-to-face human interaction, you and I are friends and we are talking and everything is normal. But the way that, te- what, what technology, specifically social media does, is that it takes the normal one-on-one interaction and it turns one person into, into the consumer and one person into the object or the product or the, or the um, commodity to be consumed, Right? And so that you're no longer, it's no longer just me and you interacting. You are now something that is there for my entertainment. You are now there for my happiness. And you are, you are now there for my well-being. Here's what I mean by that. We are sitting at a table across from one another. Me and you are telling, and you're telling me this interminable and terribly boring and annoying story about how many meals a day your dog eats. I do not care to hear this story. But you keep going on and on about it. And here's what happens. I don't have the option of getting up and leaving. Okay, I have to sit there and endure this story with you whether I want to hear it or not, right? Because it's rude. I don't want to be that kind of a person. So you're telling me about this story and I have to sit there and endure it. But through social media, you give me a status update about how many meals a day your dog eats or whether your dog threw up today. What can I do? I can hide it from my news feed. I don't want to see it anymore. I can scroll down and see other things that are more entertaining and well-being for my personal life. You are now a commodity in my world. You are now on my Facebook wall. And if I don't want to see you, well, I don't have to see you. This also, we don't ever have to have, um, we don't, in social media, we don't have to develop skills in reconciliation and conflict management. Why? Well, because if you insult my profile picture or you don't like my Pinterest post, well, then that's grounds for me to terminate you as a friend on Facebook. And I can defriend you without ever talking to you or you ever knowing about it. So four months from now, you'll look for me and it'll be like, Ada's friend, did he defriend me? You know what I'm talking about? We, for those of us that are on Facebook, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We've all defriended someone. And they have no idea about it. It's simply because they cut us off in traffic two weeks ago. They're like, what happened? Did they delete their Facebook? No, they just don't like me. Because they're commodities. They don't add to my world. They're not making me happy anymore. Let's look at the next slide. This is best epitomized in reality television. Let's be honest. Most of us in here are reality television junkies. Well, some of us in here are reality. We watch one of these shows at least. In my home... Yes, we watch some of these shows, <laughs> like Dance Moms and all this, this crazy, I don't, I don't like any of them. But nevertheless, what reality television has done, and whether you like it or not, it's indifferent, it doesn't matter, it's entertaining. But what it's done is it's taken people's lives, whether they're real or not, and made them commodities for me to consume. I know nothing about Dog the Bounty Hunter in a personal person relationship. But I do know that he has a home in Denver, and he has a home in Hawaii. I know that he hunts fugitives with his wife and his two sons. I know that his son's hair is down like to his low. I, I know weird things about Dog the Bounty Hunter, but if Dog the Bounty Hunter begins to bore me, what can I do? Change the channel. Because his life is there to entertain me, and if it doesn't entertain me, well, then I can just relegate it to the sidelines. Or these other shows, things like the always wholesome Bachelorette and things like the always wholesome Real Housewives, right? These wonderful shows. What are these shows all about? They're all about manipulating relationships and manipulating the things around us to get to the top, to become the most successful. So the Bachelorette contestants, they make alliances, they don't make alliances. The Survivor contestants, they make alliances, they don't make alliances in order to get to the top, in order to be the most successful. Because relationships are there for me to manipulate in my own world for my own personal well-being. Perhaps this is best demonstrated in pornography. Where individuals are no longer subjects, thinking, feeling, and breathing human beings, but they're not objects that exist for my pleasure. Or commodities for me to consume. See what's happening to relationships in the modern world. They're deteriorating to some degree. Now granted, Facebook is not all bad. I know there's beautiful things about it. I'm not trying to say that at all. But anyway, so we've got commodification one. Two, specialization. I find it ironic that as big as the massive social networking has gotten, 
as, as connected as we all are, we now have the greater, the more power than ever to create little niches for ourselves that look a whole lot like us. For example, I found a website that's called findafriend.com. If you don't have a friend and you're looking for a friend, it's a little sketch. I don't know. It's weird. But nevertheless, you can find a friend and you can search obviously by age or address or gender, whatever. But then you can also search by interests. So if you're really into one of the interests is paranormal and under paranormal is fairies. So if you're really into fairies and you think fairies are something that are worth investigating your time and interest, then there is somebody out there to be your friend. They may be in India, but they can be your friend. We can search by goldfish dying support groups or something. I don't know. There's all kinds of different options out there for us to find friends for one another. But we can create little worlds for ourselves that look a whole lot like us. Perhaps this is best exemplified in, in mass media. Let's look at the next slide. I don't know which one of these you watch, but you prefer one of them. And there's a reason. Because they tell us the facts in a way that we like to hear the facts, Right? And we all know which one leans to which way and which ones lean to the other ways. We all know this because, well, not all of us, but those of us that are into news media know these kinds of things. So let's take the example of the health care bill that the Supreme Court recently upheld. Whether you thought that was the greatest decision in the history of humankind or the worst thing that's ever happened to the U.S. Constitution, you could find you a news network that talked back to your own opinion, right? We could find those that sympathize exactly with us, that make us feel like we're validated in what we're experiencing. We're specialized. And so... What happened, I don't know if you saw on the day that this happened, the Facebook newsfeed exploded, for those of you that are on Facebook. And I saw many statuses say something to the extent of this. I had no idea so many of my friends were raging conservatives or raging liberals. Let's just say my friends list shrunk today. Because we all know the grounds to being your friend is to agree with you. And if we don't agree with you, well, then that's grounds for termination. Awkward, Right? You can find a church that fits your liking. You can find anything that fits your liking because why? We, can, we have now more power than ever to be specialized. So it's a specialization of human relationships. And if we happen to disagree, happen to not like, happen to not get along with, happen to not look like, well, we don't have to have that relationship. Next, so we have commodification, specialization, and the last is virtualization. And this is exemplified in the stories of David and Trish Palmer. There's beautiful stories of, of people coming together across vast lines because of technology. But... And I know you can all relate, with, relate to this because we all have people that we relate with mostly on a text conversation level or a phone call conversation level or a voicemail level, email level, a non-face-to-face level. So we've all used this before, right? When that person that annoys us to death or that person that we don't want to talk to and give them bad news, etc., some reason that we don't want to talk to this person, we finally encounter them face-to-face at like the grocery store or the drugstore or something like that. And they're like, oh, did you, um, did you get my text message? I, oh, I didn't get any of the 18 text messages you sent me. I don't know what happened. I, didn't have, I was in the mountains for three years, and then my phone just disappeared. You know what I'm talking about? I, I didn't happen to get that voicemail. I, it must have just gone straight to voicemail land. I don't know what happened, right? We have these excuses that we use, and we can terminate relationships because we don't have a face-to-face interaction that's demanded anymore. And so if human beings are commodities that exist for my world via social media, and if, and, if human being, and if I can create my own little world that looks a whole lot like me, if the main communication that I have with those that are not my most intimate friendships are things that are not face-to-face communication, well, then disloyalty becomes that much more accessible and acceptable in our world. We can, we, can, we can sever relationships based on the grounds that they did not send me a thank you letter. You know what I'm talking about. We hear this all the time on the news around us. And so that's with our acquaintances, right? And we would assume that wouldn't affect our most intimate relationships, but we cannot assume that. 
That if we're engaged in all these different things, then that, that naturally affects all of the relationships that we're a part of. And so the culture naturally sees loyalty as something somewhat of a liability. Something you're giving up your own personal happiness by being self-sacrificial to another individual. And that is not okay in a, in a culture that's obsessed with self. And into the heart of this conundrum, into the heart of this mess of technological advancement and postmodernism, when Facebook is, hasn't even had its 10th birthday yet, in the heart of this confusing time, the gospel speaks loud with clarity and it speaks with conviction and it speaks with an alternative way of living in the world that challenges us to do something differently, to be a different type of people. And it's found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, and it says this, So in everything, everything, not in what's convenient, not in what seems best to us, not in situations that present themselves where it seems like it's going to work out best. No, in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Commit to others as you would have them commit to you. Show hope to others as you would have them show hope to you. Show peace to others, show encouragement to others as you would have them show hope for you. For this sums up the law from the prophets. It's banal. It's hackneyed. If we've grown up in church, this verse is everywhere. It's like, well, I get it. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. But when it rings in the back of our minds and it rings with clarity, we realize that to truly embrace these words, especially in a narcissistic culture that's obsessed with self, right? So if I'm, if I'm to love my neighbor as I love myself, then that's a whole lot of love in a, in a narcissistic culture like ours. But nevertheless, it means, it, it means that in everything that I'm going to devote myself to an individual, regardless of what I get back, Jesus is radical. These words are radical. They're not simple. Okay? And so, this is what uh, Karl Barth, who's a phenomenal 19th century theologian, calls Christian love. And he means loving purely for the sake of the other. Having no gain for the self. It doesn't matter what I get for myself. It's love purely for the sake of the other. Because in Christ, that's actually possible. It's not too ideal. But, we ask ourselves the question. What does this look like with flesh and bone attached to it? How do I know that I'm living out this commandment? What does do unto others look like in my world? What is the golden rule lived out? Well, thanks to the Bible, the Bible's a whole lot longer than one book and one chapter. There's this whole other half to it that happens to be my favorite half, commonly referred to as the Old Testament. Many people don't like to read this half because it's kind of confusing. A lot of things happening. They're like, why, why are they circumcising so many people? I don't understand what's happening in this massive Old Testament book. But nevertheless, it's my favorite part. And then tucked away in the heart of this book is a, book that is a, is a story that exemplifies the great commandment, the, the golden rule here. So, um, if you're with me in Ruth 1. If you want to go ahead and get your Bibles there and open back up to Ruth chapter 1. See, this story... It doesn't center upon the loving relationship, the warm mentorship of a father and son. The story of great commitment and audacious loyalty does not center upon the playful interaction of sisters or the rescue of brothers. It doesn't center on the intimate connections between a mother and daughter or even the romantic love between a husband and wife. No. This story is about true radical commitment over across awkward family lines and even ethnic identities. I'm talking about a story of loyalty between a woman and her mother-in-law, right? I find it ironic, the greatest story of love, one of the greatest exemplaries, uh, examples of love that we have is between a woman and her mother-in-law. I don't pretend to know this relationship at all, but I know this relationship can be awfully tense sometimes and awfully awkward, things like that. So, given this relationship, the story begins like... This. It's set in the time of the judges. The judges is a time of, of very extreme violence and oppression and sexual immorality. It literally says at the end of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because there was no king in Israel. 
It's a story literally that ends with a woman who is raped and murdered and then cut up into pieces and sent to the different tribes of Israel. It's a gruesome, gruesome time, a time of violence, a time of oppression. And the heart of this time comes the story of Ruth. And this story of Ruth is a story about communal loyalty and a peaceable community. And it shows that even against the backdrop of violence can be this beautiful portrayal of loyalty. That even against the backdrop of a culture that can drop people like bad habits simply because they disagree with us, there can be a beautiful community of loyalty like us today. Right? So to help us tell this story, I've got some stick figures because the story can get a little confusing. Right? So you've got Elimelech. This is a story about Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They love one another. And they have two sons named Malon and Kilion. And so Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion are living in the land of Judah. And they realize that there's a famine in the land. And so they have to go find food elsewhere. Let's look at the next slide. Just to show you where they are, you see Bethlehem is the lower dot of the two dots. If you can see it, I know it's a little washed out. But they have to go east and then across uh, the river that's just above the Dead Sea there. And head south into the land of Moab. Now, if you're an ancient Israelite and you're living in these times and you hear that they are going into the land of Moab, you gasp because Moab is not a good place to go. If you want to know what Moabites are like, well, then you can read Deuteronomy 23.3, which says that no Moabite is allowed into the camp of the Israelites because they're enemies. You can read Numbers 21, which talks about the men of Judah sleeping with the women of Moab and causing them to worship other gods and God punishes them with a plague. Moab is a, a, a nation of unfaithfulness. If you want to read about Moab, you can read about Numbers 25 where the king of Moab makes Balaam cry out and curse Israel. But of course, Balaam can't because God prevents him from doing so. And then in Judges chapter 3, you can read about a time of oppression when the Israelites were under Moab and the Moabites... Uh, enacted violence upon them for 18 years. So Moab is a, type, is a place of oppression, a place of sexual immorality, a place of apostasy, a place where Israelites are not welcome. And yet Elimelech and his family go to Moab. And while they're in the land of Moab, let's look at the next slide, Elimelech dies. Naomi is left with her two sons in the land of Moab. And as is custom, everything in that time is about finding an heir. And so Malon and Killian have to marry Somebody in the land. And so they marry two Moabite women. Next slide. Malon marries Ruth. And Kilion marries Orpah. And this, this text sets this up in less than 10 verses in the first chapter. It's pretty fast, fast-paced stuff to set up the narrative. And for reasons we do not know, Malon and Kilion both die. And so Naomi is left with Ruth and Orpah. Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law having no remnant of her family in a land that is not her own. You can almost hear her sobbing in the night. And what's so crazy is that Israel has a way of addressing God when bad things are happening. You ever read the Psalms, right? You go to the Psalms looking for encouragement and you read all these Psalms about all my friends hate me and right? all these kind of depressing Psalms. So these are Israel's way of, of dealing with suffering, of, of crying out to God. And Naomi never does that. Naomi doesn't talk to God in chapter 1. Naomi is so broken, so embittered, that she cannot even address the God that she so dearly loved before. Her life is shattered. And Ruth and Orpah as well have no hope of an heir because they've been married for 10 years in this land and they do not have children. So they are broken as well. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And we wonder, where is God in this story? God appears in this story two times. The first time is right here. Let's look at the next slide. God in the book of Ruth, it says the first time that God appears is at the beginning, the last time is at the end. When she heard in Moab, talking about Naomi, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So the first appearance of God in the story of Ruth is that Naomi hears that God's given food back home. God has done nothing for Naomi. God has just given food back home. God does not appear again to the end of the book. Remember that. File that away. We're going to come back to that. It's very important. Okay? Got it? 
So uh, the Lord seems to be wholly absent from the story. Now, several times God is invoked in speech, but nevertheless, God is still absent as a direct character in the story. So where is God? Naomi's world is devoid of God, it seems like, in the story. We're going to pick up the verse, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 8. You're going to have the verses on the screen. I'm going to read them from my Bible. I just want to break it down for us. I want us to read the story together. I want to show you the complexity and the beauty of this narrative. And the beauty of Ruth's commitment, and then we'll get to um, the application, which is really, really good, by the way. Okay, here we go. So, chapter 1, verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you. The, the, word, the Hebrew word for go back is the word shuv. Not shoe, but shoe. Shoe along, Ruth. Um, shoe, which means to turn or to return, right? And so this word is used six or seven times in, in, in the first chapter of Ruth, and especially in this conversation. And it shows the complexity of what is home for these women, right? Do they want to return with Naomi? Do they want to turn back to Moab? Naomi wants them to return back to Noah, but nevertheless, they want to return with her. So what, what is home for these women? It, just, it, it shows the complexity of these relationships, the complexity of, of deep, deep personal hurt and emotion that is going on here. Go back, shuv, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you. Another fact you need to file away for the next two minutes. The word kindness is the word hesed. It's used all throughout the Old Testament to describe God's love, God's loyalty. And here she's saying, may God's chesed, may God's love, may God's loyalty. Yeah, the ch in the, in the Hebrew, it's so cool. The, we don't have that. We need that. Just the good old ch to clear the throat, right? So the, the chesed, you want to say it with me? The chesed, there it is. Beautiful. I, I feel the spit. So, um... Then Naomi said to her two daughters, and I'll go back to each of you. So she's saying, the kindness of the Lord, may the Lord show you kindness. This is common, referred to God. And this is, um, she's saying, may God bless you because you've shown loyalty to me, as you've shown to your dead and to me. Verse 9, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest or security in the home of another husband. So Naomi's saying, listen, go home. I got nothing to offer you. I wish you all the best. I wish you blessings. Go home. Go back to Moab. And then Naomi kissed them. And Ruth and Orpah wept aloud and said to her, We will go back, we will shuv, we will shuv with you to your people. We want to go home with you. But Naomi said, Return home, shuv, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husband? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Look at her. Ruth, uh, Naomi is essentially saying, I have no benefit for you. You want to go home with me back to Israel? I can't give you anything. I can't give you an heir. I can't give you food. I'm worthless in my society. I'm basically going to have to glean and pick up all the scraps of other people's food. I have no benefit for you. And Ruth and Orpah react differently this time. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. What's so cool about the Hebrew text is that it highlights Ruth in the center of the sentence. And it says, but Ruth clung. And the Hebrew word is davak. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter 2 to talk about a man and will leave his family and cling to his wife. Right? So we're talking about the intimate connection of a husband and wife. We're talking about that faithfulness, that loyalty that's, called, that's, that's characterizing that relationship. Well, cling, she clung to her. So you can just imagine Ruth wrapped around Naomi's ankles like, nope, I'm not going. You're not going without me. I'm going with you. She's kind of dragging her along, right? But then Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people. Look, Orpah's going home. She's going back to her people and her gods. Shuv, go back with her. Now we can't fault Orpah. Orpah's done what's right. It's okay that she goes home. 
So if it's okay that Orpah goes home, then it means that Ruth's behavior is that much more extraordinary, that much more beautiful, that much more beyond what is expected. Ruth is still clinging to her. And here, just after this commitment, as Ruth is wrapped around Naomi saying, I'm not letting you leave me, we find some of the most beautiful poetry in all of the Old Testament, the most beautiful loyalty, a poem of loyalty that she says to Naomi. And I want you to hear it. But Ruth replied, as we read earlier, I want us to see how this thing unfolds. It unfolds in intense layers. It gets more and more intense, the commitment does, as it gets to the very end. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you. The word is azav. It means to forsake or to abandon. It's often used when God says, I will not forsake you or abandon you. Just like Ruth. Ruth is saying, I'm not going to abandon you. Or turn back, shuv. I'm not going to shuv. I'm going to shuv with you. I'm not going to shuv home. I'm going to shuv with you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Now, the Hebrew is even more terse. It's just saying, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Think about this for a minute. Naomi is ailing and elderly, and she's at the bottom of her society. Ruth can gain nothing from going home with her. And she is saying, even though you can do nothing to benefit my world, even though you can do nothing to help me out, wherever you are, there you're going to find me next to you. Though you contribute nothing to me, I have no monetary value. You give me no monetary value. You give me nothing else. I'm going to be found alongside of you. Continues. Your people will be my people and your God. My God. The the Hebrew is even more terse. It says your people, my people, and your God. My God. Has anybody ever been overseas or to another culture where you felt completely out of place? Right? A couple of us. Or maybe you've just been in a subculture of the United States where you're like, I do not belong here. Right? We know that feeling. We know that feeling of being an outsider. Well, here Ruth is saying... I'm willing to learn how to cook Israelite cuisine. I'm willing to learn the Israelite songs. I'm willing to dress like an Israelite. I'm willing to speak Israelite. I'm willing to look and act and be an Israelite. Now think about this. This is equivalent to saying that she, she is an extreme enemy of Israel and she's just going to walk into Israel and say, I want to be a part of your people. Obviously, she's going to be persecuted. And this is commonly, you see it in the book, the commonly referred to her as the Moabite. Oh, there goes the Moabite. Yeah, there's the Moabite again, right? She doesn't have a name. She's just the evil Moabite. So she knows she's going to be persecuted. Remember, Naomi has nothing to contribute to her, but I'm going to go alongside with you. So where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people are my people. And this is crazy too. Your God will be my God. Many of you did not grow up in this faith. You did not grow up in this expression of the Christian faith. Some of you have left the faith from former religions, like Islam or Hinduism or agnosticism and atheism, and you've come into this faith and you know what it's like to be rejected by a family that knows that you no longer worship as they do. You know the pain, you know the heartache. Ruth's willing to endure it. Or maybe you were a former, you, were a, you worshiped as a different type of expression of Christianity, and so when they found out that you became a Pentecostal, they thought, oh my goodness, they're going to be playing with snakes, it's not going to be good, there's going to be bad things happening in these services, right? So but nevertheless, you still came because you saw life here. And here's Ruth saying, I'm willing to endure the persecution of my own family. To be with you because you need me. The beauty of that loyalty is hard to truly grasp. Remember, Naomi can do nothing for Ruth. For you die, I will die. There there I will. And then then this gets even more intense. And it concludes with this. Where you die, I die. There I will be buried. So just think, Naomi, is this isn't, Ruth's not saying, okay, until you die, and then I'm going to go home. No. When you die, I'm still going to stay with you until I die and our bones are going to lie next to one another. I mean, the reality of this commitment is beyond words. There's a reason that these words are used at weddings a lot. And then finally, it concludes, she invokes the Lord. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. This beautiful poetry. And how does Naomi respond? Next slide. 
Next slide. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined, strong, in Hebrew, strong to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now, here's where it gets really, really good. Remember, God only appears twice in the book of Ruth. We'll get there in a minute. But, so Ruth goes along with Naomi, and she provides food for her, and she provides an heir for her, and she cares for her, and these beautiful words of loyalty actually play out as she says they do. But in chapter 3, Boaz, is a character you don't need to know about for today, but you need to read about on your own because he's awesome. So Boaz, he tells her that her loyalty, her chesed, remember that word? We all said it together. And the chesed, right? The chesed of, of, of Ruth is admirable. So a, a quality that's commonly applied to God is now applied to Ruth. Hmm. And God is absent from the story. Hmm. Now, next slide. What does chesed mean? Well, it's commonly translated as kindness. Loving kindness, faithfulness, loyalty. When we say your love endures forever, it's based on the Hebrew word chesed. It's one action that is essential for the survival or the well-being of somebody else. So it's not getting them their favorite ice cream. It's like saving them from a pit. Okay? Two, it's action that only the person doing the act of chesed can provide. So Ruth is the only one in position to help Naomi out. Right? Nobody else is around to be loyal to Naomi. And last, it's action that occurs in the context of an already established and positive relationship. Ruth and Naomi already have a relationship, so she shows her chesed. Think about it. God is absent from the narrative. God is only, God is only present in hearsay of Naomi. I just heard that God gave them food. But nevertheless, the quality and the character of God is present in whom? It's present in Ruth. Such that in the world where it seems like God is absent, in Naomi's world where it seems like God is failing and God has embittered her, Ruth becomes the very embodiment of the presence of God next to her. This spits in the face of a, of a culture that's turning people into commodities. It spits in the face of people that are creating their own little nooks of worlds that everybody looks like me. It spits in the face of those where we sever relationships merely because of petty little things. And it says, no, I smile upon loyalty. And when people seem to be in darkened places and I seem to be absent from, them, from their world, you now become the embodiment of me in their lives. You see what I'm saying? It's incarnational theology. It's beautiful. So we follow in the footsteps of Ruth, and if we, hear the, if we heed the voice of our Savior saying, in everything do unto others, if we follow that, we find ourselves in situations not unlike that of these ancient women. Maybe we're not dealing with famine or immigration or destitute mothers-in-law. Maybe we're not dealing with that, or maybe we are. But nevertheless, we find ourselves alongside of people that are desperate, that are pleading for rescue. These people have broken dreams and frayed nerves. These people have given up on the very hope of prayer. These people pleading for validation, for encouragement, for companionship, for security. These people who have renamed their worlds as bitter and themselves as bitter because they feel like that God has resolutely failed them for the rest of their lives. And we, by the unfathomable grace of God, have the inspiring opportunity to be the unnamed yet undeniable presence of the living God in their darkened worlds. Right? Such that we, chesed is often tar- uh, described as a stubborn and sticky love. We can become the stubborn and sticky love to those that are closest to us when they feel like that God is nowhere near them. You hear me? It's good. So that Ruth becomes God to Naomi. So, for husbands, with wives who feel embittered by broken dreams that they feel like that they've given up for you or a family, we can become the ever-listening ear of God, always inclined to compassion. Always inclined to self-sacrifice, just as Christ gave himself church. For wives whose husbands are embittered by broken dreams of un- unemployment, or, or, or underemployment, or, or jobs that they don't want, or, or dying family members, then you can become the steady anchor, and the, steady, and the subtle anchor of God that always expresses, it's faithfully expressing a voice of hope in a whirlwind of confusion. For parents 
whose children are walking away from God, belittling God, thinking that God has nothing to do with them. Your unconditional love, your discipline, your encouragement, your voice of validation becomes the very embodiment of the presence of God to them. And although it's painful, although it's broken, and although it feels like they're constantly disobedient and nothing is changing, you can become that steady presence and voice of God in a world where they feel like God is no longer a part, such that God no longer becomes a despot to them. But when they look at you, they say, if God is like that, then I want God. See that? For children whose parents are aging and fighting affliction and fighting physical, physical deterioration, hear me, the miles you are putting on your car and all of the hours you are spending with doctors and assisted living homes are not in vain. They're not simply a fulfillment of a commandment. They are the physical, tangible presence of the living God, showing them that God is with them even unto the end, even unto death. For friends that are destitute by a broken economy, the checks that we write them because we have more means than they are not messy Like foolishness, meddling in affairs that are not our own. Rather, it is the provisional hand of God reaching in and saying, I still care about you. You may not be, you may only be hearing about me, but I'm still alive in your world and it's seen in these people. Talking about being a people of loyalty. You see, God doesn't look at loyalty and say, this is a liability. God doesn't look at loyalty and say, oh, well, to self-sacrifice is to give up on your own dreams. God looks at loyalty and smiles upon it. God looks at loyalty and says, this is what it means to be human. God looks at loyalty and says, this is the kind of behavior that endures into the kingdom of the age to come. This is the kind of behavior that makes my kingdom alive. God doesn't look at loyalty and say, oh, well, yeah, that's petty. But if you want to do that, you can. God's like, no, this is what my people will be like forever. You've just gotten a taste of it now. Hear me. Hear me. If you're in an abusive situation, if you're in a situation of physical, emotional, sexual, whatever, verbal abuse, you are not called of God to be in that relationship. That's not what I'm talking about. You're not called to be loyal to them. But do hear me. For those of us in a culture that is constantly severing relationships and we feel like we're on our wits end, find strength today in the story of Ruth and hear her words of commitment and adopt them as your own and embody God's presence regardless of what we get back. Because it's there that God smiles. Because it's there that we find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So, how do we do this? Three quick things and then I'm done. Band, you can come. Three quick things. First is choice. First is choice. Um, We cannot begin to embody the presence of God without first saying, I decide to to embody the presence of God in those around me. If we have friends that need us, we have friends that, co-workers that are struggling and have no idea who God is, or we have husbands and wives that are depressed, whatever, it doesn't matter. We have to first choose today that I'm going to be a loyal person in their lives. No matter what I get out of it, even though they have no benefit to give me whatsoever, I'm going to commit to them heart and soul, body and mind forever, and my bones will be buried with their bones kind of a deal. It starts with the first choice. Second is consistency. You know, the ancient Christians, the early Christian writers, first began to talk about Um, the Christian life, a lot in terms of virtue language. Now, virtue language says this. It says that every decision that you make, whether small or large, contributes to to you becoming a certain type of person. So, the fact that we all made a decision this morning to get up and come to church says something about the type of people that we want to be, right? So, the more and more we make a decision over and over again, the more it becomes an ingrained habit in our hearts and minds, and the more and more that we actually begin to react in those ways automatically. Such that, for example, military commanders can act with with poise and with calmness in situations of great distress. Why? Because they've been trained over and over and over and over and over again to the point where they understand how to react in those situations. They program their bodies to do that. We, as Christ's followers, with the help of the Holy Spirit, can program our minds and hearts to loyalty. 
Isn't that beautiful? So that every opportunity that we have to be loyal, we take it. The first couple, the first few, the first 10, the first 20 decisions may be the most hardest we make. But eventually we'll begin to realize, hey, this loyalty thing, it's becoming a part of me. Hey, this commitment thing, hey, these words, I will go with you where you go. Hey, these words that your people will be my people. Hey, these words of commitment and loyalty, yeah, it's becoming automatic for me. But to make the choice today and then not make the choice tomorrow is to doom ourselves. But to make the choice today and then present it tomorrow, we make it, whether small or large, and over and over again. And before you know it, people begin to use the word loyal when they describe you. So consistency, consistency. And the third thing is Christ. Because all of it's pointless without him. What's so, what's so beautiful is that the golden command is an actual, the, the golden rule, the do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is actually possible in Christ's world. But without Christ, we become exhausted. And maybe you are exhausted from loyalty. Hear me today that Christ is here to replenish you. Christ is proud of you. Christ smiles upon you. But we cannot do it without him. You know, uh, Martin Luther talks about it in this way. He has this treatise on Christian freedom. And he says that internally in the inner person, we are free from all things and we are kings over all things because we participate in Christ's kingship and his resurrection. But because of that reality, as we rest secured in that identity, knowing that we are forever forgiven in Jesus Christ, then now, based on that identity, we have the complete and total freedom to serve others without any other external motivations. Why? Because if it, were, if it doesn't work out, if we don't get the thank you, if, it does, if, they, if they always seem to run away from God, if we don't get ever paid back, etc., it doesn't matter because the most cherished thing we have is our identity in Christ. And we always have that until the end of the age. So rest in Christ today. Rest in Christ today. Remember I told you God appears in the book of Ruth two times. First time is at the beginning. Second time is at the end. So the first time is just hearsay, right? Let's look at the end. This is what it says at the end. The Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. Now, in the ancient world, obviously, progeny is everything. But this son becomes the hope of Naomi. But more importantly, this son eventually becomes the grandfather of King David, which you'll see at the end of Ruth. So Ruth's loyalty and Ruth's commitment is never in vain. Because what happens at the end of Ruth? Well, at the end, as Ruth cares for Naomi, at the end of Ruth, God comes alongside and supplements Ruth's work and makes it worthwhile. And before you know it, God's written a narrative to impact all further generations forever. Why? Because David's born and then through David comes Christ, etc., Ruth is an ancestor of Christ. Pretty cool. But without ever having that loyal commitment to Naomi, it would never be there. Hear me. If you're committing to someone loyally, if you, loyal, loyally and you know someone that needs that type of commitment, to make that commitment is to step out in faith and to know it's never in vain, to know that God is going to write a narrative with it that will impact the generations. Because God is that good. So, maybe we can summarize it this way. May we be a people who embody the presence of God in the darkened worlds around us. Resting in the freedom of Christ, may we reflect God's stubborn, relentless loyalty to our spouses, our friends, our parents, our children, with an authentic expectation that our faithfulness is not in vain, and that God is working alongside of us to transform this world into God's hospitable kingdom. Amen. Can we stand together? I'll bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. I know this subject is very touchy. I want to ask a couple questions. 
And I'm going to ask for a show of hands with every head bowed and eye closed. First question I want to ask. Is how many of you in here know somebody that you need, that, that knows, how many, how many of you have somebody that you know needs a loyal commitment from you, that you can embody the very presence of God in their lives today? You can commit to them and be stubborn, God's stubborn presence in their world when it seems darkened and absent of God. One. Two, I want to ask, how many of you in here are dealing with just complicated relationships? You're trying to be loyal. It's difficult and it's hard and you want God's rest today. You need God's security today. Hands everywhere. And three, I want to ask, for those of you that maybe are in abusive relationships, you don't have to raise a hand if you don't want to. But just those that are feeling the suffering are contemplating, what, do I stay loyal? Do I not stay loyal? What, what do I do? You're broken and you're hurting. I know that's representative of many here today. If you don't mind, can we take hands across the aisles that you're sitting in? And I don't know if we've done this before. It's okay. I mean, you don't have to take... Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Cool. Here's what I want us to do today. I want us to be God's touch to one another today. I want us to be unashamed in praying for one another. If you're not okay with praying out loud, that's totally fine. But I'm going to pray over, the ne- over these next few moments. And if you don't mind praying for the person on your right and on your left, maybe that person is the one you're committing to loyally. Maybe that person is one who's dealing with a complicated relationship. Whatever the case, we're going to pray for them today. We want to make that commitment before God. Let's pray together. God, we love you today. We thank you for your loyalty to us. We thank you for your love to us. We thank you, Lord God, that you never fail us. And so because of that, because of that that rest that we have in Christ, that freedom we have in Christ, we can now embody that to those around us in their darkened worlds. And so, Lord God, we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to embody that loyal presence to those around us. We ask, Jesus, we choose today in you to take Ruth's words on our own lips and to say we are going to commit to them. Their world may seem devoid of God. They may be pleading for validation. We commit to our spouses. We commit to our children today. We commit to our parents. We commit to our grandparents. We commit to our extended family. We commit to our friends and our coworkers. We commit. We are going to be a people of loyalty today. We commit to one another. God, we want to be a people who embodies your very presence to one another. And for those of us in this room, Lord God, that are suffering from broken relationships, that are trying to be loyal today, for each and every person in this room dealing with relationships that are broken and shattered, Lord Jesus, I just ask for your rest to come upon them. I ask for your reconciliation to come upon them. I ask for forgiveness to reign in their world. I ask, Lord God, that your peace would cover their hearts now, that they may know that you're proud of them, that you love them, that you forgive them, that you're with them, that you're going to mend that relationship. I ask for new strength today. I ask for new insight today. I ask for new hope today, new life. Lord God, cover them and make them sh- and, and validate them. May they know, Lord Jesus, that this relationship is not hopeless. But you're going to walk them through it, give them wisdom and discernment to find it. And for those of us in this room, Lord God, that are suffering abuse, Lord God, give us the courage to step out. Give us the courage to stand up. Give us the courage to be the people you want us to be. Lord God, help us to rally around those that are experiencing that. May they reach out for help, Lord God, and may they find a new community. All of us today, Lord God, whether spouses, children, friends, coworkers, whatever, we say we are a people of you and you are loyal, so we are loyal. In a culture that says that loyalty is a liability, we say it is a gift from you. We say it is what it means to be human, and we look forward to your very loyal, ever-coming kingdom. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.